0: Hi, this is James Rudd with The Heart Podcast. Many thanks for joining me on this episode. We've got a really interesting episode for you today. It's a fascinating insight into the world of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, featuring appearances from ARVC and dilated cardiomyopathy. And this is an interview with Professor Perry Elliott, who works at both University College London and also Bart's Hospital in London. He's a world expert in cardiomyopathy. And in this discussion, we dive deep into the genetics of cardiomyopathy, the role of genetic testing, what you should look for when you're faced with a patient with possible ARVC, and also the latest thinking in drug, device, and gene therapy, and where this might be in, uh, in 20 years' time. I really hope you enjoy the podcast. It's a great discussion, and I've already invited Professor Elliot back to talk more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, another one of his expert areas. Please leave us a review in iTunes if you feel so inclined. It really does help uh, raise the profile of the podcast and helps us to reach more listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you very much indeed for joining me today, uh, Professor Elliot on the Heart Podcast. Perhaps for the audience you could introduce yourself and tell people where you work and what you specialize in.
1: Sure, so my name is Perry Elliot. I'm a professor in cardiovascular medicine at university college in London and a consultant at St Bartholomew's hospital. Um, I've got a, I suppose a 20, 30 year history of, um, research and, um, engagement in clinical care of patients with cardiomyopathies, um, as well as some other inherited cardiovascular disease.
0: And you've just written a comprehensive education in heart article, uh, published recently in Heart, all about arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies. And um, I thought it'd be really useful for the audience if we could uh, just touch on some of the highlights of this article. It will be made free for a few weeks after the podcast, so people can go away and digest it, uh, the, the fine details of the article. But perhaps we can talk a little bit about uh, ARVC and the other arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies. How common is this type of cardiomyopathy compared to, should we say, Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or dilated cardiomyopathy, just roughly.
1: Yeah, so I suppose that if you if you take it at its simplest level, it, it's one of the least common cardiomyopathies. So we generally say that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the most frequent, um, with a value of around one in five hundred of the population. Um, and ARVC, best guesses are one in two thousand or less common than that. But but these numbers are. They're useful sort of summary figures, but they they don't really, um, I think, align to what we see in clinical practice. So, for example, if you take hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that 1 in 500 figure uh, comes from data. If you take an echo machine and scan, you know, a thousand young adults, you'll find 1 in 500 of them may have a thick heart, but they're often very well and they're not on the radar of a healthcare professional. The... ARVC in its classical form, you know, and we perhaps go on to discuss what that means. I think is genuinely quite rare, but what we're starting to see is a is a much broader, subtler phenotype, which actually I think most general cardiologists probably encounter all the time, but don't necessarily apply the label of ARVC to it. So, so I think that these figures are. Difficult to translate into what we what we encounter in clinical practice, but ARVC in its classical form I think is pretty rare.
0: And let's talk a little bit more about ARVC then. What's the uh, underlying or most typical uh, pathology that we would expect uh, in this disease? So it's one of the reasons it's difficult to diagnose is that it is it requires a
1: number of pieces of information beyond sort of cardiac imaging. So. the 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 thing that defines the condition is replacement of myocardium in the right ventricle by fat and fibrosis and the consequence of that is enlargement of the right ventricle um, aneurysms in the free wall of the right ventricle um, which act which act as foci for ventricular arrhythmias Um, it's a condition which is classically associated with sudden death in in young people um, often young, fit, highly trained individuals, um, and in the long term may go on um, to result in in heart failure with particular um, right heart failure. Um, that That's what I think the the classical paradigm is. It's one of you know, right ventricular disease, scarring and fat replacement, ventricular arrhythmias, and a propensity to sudden cardiac death.
0: And we understand, um, according to your review, the genetics, if we if we talk initially about classical ARVC, fairly well, don't we? This seems to have come to light in the in the nineteen eighties uh, with the association of this condition with a with a skin disease. That's very interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, I mean you yeah, know, for anybody who's contemplating cardiovascular research, you know, always find a disease which occurs on a sunny island in the Aegean. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so yeah. The the first clue to the genetics of ARVC came from the island of Naxos, where there were a small number of families in which people with the condition had abnormally curly hair and plantar hyperkeratosis, so they'd get thickening of the skin over their hands and feet. Um, and it was well known on the island that people who developed this condition would often die in their 20s and 30s from ventricular arrhythmia. Um, and the, the the person who sort of pulled this together was a guy called Nikos Protonatarius and his wife, Adelena, who, um, after medical training and military service, returned to the island and basically collected data on these families. Um, it became a, clear that it was a recessive disease um, and then work with a number of um, groups, including my right, as well, senior colleague Bill McKenna in London resulted in the identification of a of a mutation in a gene called placoglobin, which is a, an important component of the intercalated disc, the, you know, the structure that sticks cardiomyocytes together end to end. Now, Naxos disease, as it's been subsequently called, is incredibly rare and seems nearly exclusive to the island. But, but another skin phenotype was identified in families in South America called Carvajal syndrome, and this, too, was a, a recessive condition caused by mutations in another of these intercalated disc proteins called desmoplakin. So so this, this paradigm of intercalated disc disease was born. And when we subsequently looked at families and individuals with what appeared to be dominant disease, that's where mutations in desmoplakin and other intercalated disc proteins were identified. So... Yeah, the paradigm became that ARBC is a disease of the intercalated disc. And then I
0: read in your review and elsewhere that one theory is that the because the cardiomyocytes have a tendency to, to drift apart because of this mutation, the, the fibro-fatty tissue is a, almost an attempt of the body to hold things together.
1: Yeah, that's that's what we used to say. I, mean, I, I think it's it's a bit more complex than that because what we're seeing is myocyte death. There seems to be a a. a signals within cells which turn on fat deposition are increased. Um, we see inflammation. Um, the I think what we're learning is that the, the, part, the final common pathways in this disease are actually quite complex and they, and they link to changes in intracellular signaling as well as probably um, autoimmune mechanisms which drive the disease. So I think it's the right ventricle itself is a vulnerable structure. It's a thin-walled structure, and therefore, you know, when pulled under pressure, it may be that these mutations result in increased cellular vulnerability. But I think it's, it's more than just the cells pulling apart. It's actually quite a complex process of, of dysregulation of a number of, of biological pathways.
0: And since that initial genetic uh, unraveling or genetic abnormality unraveling, in your review, you talk quite a lot about how the disease definitions have moved mm. uh, to uh, away from sort of classical ARVC, but also a recognition of similar patterns occurring within the left ventricle, uh, as well as the right ventricle, and then even within the left ventricle alone uh, over the last few years. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that was really the the major stimulus for this article. Um, you know, this, this term that Think everybody's now settling on arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy is an attempt to describe a much broader family of diseases um you know we've got ourselves into a little bit of a mess with terminology um arvc is a pure concept you know right ventricle aneurysms as i as i've described is easy to understand but even if you go back to some of the early pathology studies you know left ventricular involvement was present there were there was scar and uh, sometimes fat replacement in the posterior wall of the left ventricle. Um, the clinical clues were all there. So if you know the classical ECG of a patient with ARVC, they often have what appears to be an inferior infarct pattern. So even on the ECG, it was pretty evident that there was left ventricular disease. And so so we've been through a phase of sort of rather tortuous mm-hmm. nomenclature where we talk about. ARVC with left ventricular involvement or ALVC Um, but what we really have is a a group group of diseases that affect both ventricles sometimes one more than the other which are associated with usually scarring sometimes dilatation of one or both ventricles and a high rhythmic burden and and, and that's really the concept that, that we and many others are trying to promote now because we we believe these are being under-recognized in everyday practice
0: and talking of recognition the the criteria that we use for diagnosis are listed out uh, in their entirety in table one of your article and I, I encourage people to go and have a look there rather than as uh, regurgitate them all here but may, perhaps i can just ask you as a as a specialist in this field um when you're presented with a patient who may or may not uh, fit into the disease criteria do you do genetic testing on on everybody or is it only on people to where the diagnosis is uncertain from imaging and ECG etc
1: yeah that's a good question I think so that the the table that you refer to is the is the so-called task force criteria for the diagnosis of ARVC and anybody that's read them or that you know, wants to read them will see they're pretty complex um, yeah they involve an assessment of arrhythmia ECG uh, structural abnormalities on echo MRI, uh, the family history, and maybe even a tissue analysis on biopsy. I think what they represent is the evolution of this concept of ARVC over a period of you know, 20, 30 years. And and I think they're, they're, they're very useful. They're, they're quite specific, um, but they, they don't really, I think, encompass the broader concept of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. And and, and what I, I always say to people is that, you know, we, we have this tendency, I think, in modern medicine, and particularly in cardiology, to try and force everything into neat boxes. And, and I think we just have to have a, be a little bit more agile in our thinking about diagnoses. So I think if you see someone who has a heart muscle problem, so the ventricle is dilated, or they have an unexplained wall motion abnormality, or they have unexplained scarring, and they've got a lot of ventricular arrhythmia, you know, one of the key things is to under, understand the, fa- the family background because it's it's remarkably common to find a family history of either dilated cardiomyopathy or unexplained sudden deaths or people in the family that have unexplained palpitation and if you have a family history immediately, you know your chances of finding a, a genetic disease increase dramatically. Um, if you look at dilated cardiomyopathy, which overlaps with this concept, you know. Our best guess is that maybe one in four people have a genetic predisposition to dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, if you if you have a family history, you've got probably a a one in two chance of that being genetic.
0: So a huge huge component, and you say here that uh, AC arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy is familial in about sixty percent of cases. Absolutely, absolutely,
1: and this is you know within that noise of heart failure, there this entity of of, of genetic disease exists um, and and it's becoming very relevant because we're realizing that you know some of these genetic subtypes are associated with very high risk of of sudden death in the young and early progression to heart failure so their recognition is important um, and this this i think you know is probably the one of the the best uses of genetic testing in cardiomyopathy um, you know i've been involved in genetics in, age, in cardiomyopathy now for 20 years, and if you'd asked me the question 10 years ago, where is the greatest impact going to be, I would have said in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but actually our highest yield in the clinic now is in dilated cardiomyopathy. Obviously, you're targeted to to individuals who are younger, family history, high ventricular arrhythmia burden, but our strike rate now is maybe up to 50 or 60 percent will have a definite or probable pathogenic mutation.
0: And let's move along to how we treat these people uh, you divided up nicely into uh, treatment of arrhythmias with things like uh, ICD and potentially ablation and antiarrhythmic drugs and then uh, treatment of the heart failure aspects uh, of the disease do you want to to pick a couple of points that you think people might not be aware of uh, as general cardiologists or allied health professionals yeah
1: i think um i suppose i suppose the, the fear that patients and and cardiologists alike have when when a diagnosis of cardiomyopathy is made is you know what is what is the risk of this individual dropping dead suddenly um, and in classical ARVC um, as, as the, the flow diagram we put in this article shows it's the high risk patient is generally quite easy to identify I think so you know someone who's got recurrent unexplained syncope that's consistent with a history of ventricular arrhythmia or yeah, really dreadful family history or extensive scarring. Yeah, those are individuals who generally are probably at higher risk, and are it would be reasonable to consider them for defibrillators. Um, the problem comes in in the grey zones, which are which are quite broad. You know, what do you do with the individual where there's a distant history of someone dropping dead suddenly, a cousin, and they have maybe a thousand ventricular ectopics and a little bit of scarring in their left ventricle? But everything else is fine. They're asymptomatic. They, they, their ventricular function is normal, and and there we we desperately need um, a, a better approach to risk stratification. Um, it's often um, down to the age of the patient. Um, we always advise lifestyle adjustments. So, you know, for classical ARVC, there's there's reasonable evidence suggesting that um, participation in sport at a fairly high level, particularly endurance uh, sports. It probably promotes progression of the disease, so we ask people not to do that. Um, but the, the balance of risk and benefit of a defibrillator in a young person it occupies a lot of our discussion. Um, with the new um, subcutaneous lead systems, the SICD, I think there's no doubt that the, the balance is tipping towards earlier implantation of ICDs. In people who we fall into an intermediate risk bracket um, but as I say there's, there's a lot more work to be done there I think what I would the, the message I would promote however is that this this is where genetic testing also helps you because we we have a, a list a growing list of genes that seem to have a much much higher chance of resulting in sudden death so lamin has which is a gene of the which encodes a protein of the nuclear envelope for example probably accounts for about 5% of dilated cardiomyopathy, and and is fairly stereotypic in the way in which it presents. It starts with atrial arrhythmias in in young people, um, patients that may then go on to develop various degrees of AV block. Um, They then become prone to sudden cardiac death from ventricular arrhythmia, and then their 40s, 50s, and 60s go on to develop heart failure. And its recognition is really important because patients may not receive a device or they may receive the wrong device. So they develop conduction disease, they have a pacemaker put in, and they still drop dead suddenly. Um, there's a more recently described gene called filamin, which again is one which often presents in younger people. Same sort of thing, an arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, very high risk of sudden cardiac death. So, so I think it, when people see these structural abnormalities in the ventricle, yeah, person under the age of certainly 60 they've got high ventricular ectopic burden or short runs of non-sustained VT. that's when they should be seeing what's available with regard to genetic testing. So I, th- I think that helps in risk stratification.
0: And in terms of therapies, and, and let's talk five or 10 years in the future, are we, are we ever going to find a, a genetic cure for this disease or disease-modifying drugs that may slow the progression? I mean, what's your looking into your crystal ball where do you yeah. see us in, say, twenty years?
1: I think I think it's it's an incredibly exciting time in cardiomyopathy now because I think at long last we've now got options um, that are being tested. So you know we have a number of trials now taking place in different types of cardiomyopathy using a different, uh, various different approaches. So in uh, lamin, for example, lamin-related cardiomyopathy, uh, there's now a, a study of an agent by a company called Array. Um, which is designed to modify the disease. And at least in the phase two trial, there was a a significant improvement in excise tolerance, ejection fraction, reductions in BMP. Um, We have other trials ongoing in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, other trials being contemplated in dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, We now probably, I think, genuinely have the prospect of gene therapies um, so one approach, which is still at animal stages, as it were, but is, I think, a generic platform which could apply to a number of different diseases, is, is the delivery of, of normal gene, what we call wild-type gene, into cells using adenoviral vectors. And certainly in, in murine models, that's showing great promise in the treatment of some subtypes of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So I don't think we're going to have to wait 20 years for this. I think I, I can see a horizon of maybe five or even 10 years where actually we, we have genuine disease-modifying therapies and maybe even cures. I think we can even start to dream about cures.
0: Fantastic. Well, on that very optimistic note, uh, I'd like to thank you very much indeed for your time, Professor Elliot. As I say, the, uh, the paper will be made free to everybody to, to read and download and digest. And uh, I encourage everybody to do that. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.